welcome back to Modern Medieval, the podcast. I'm Ello. And I'm Megan. And this week, we are going to do a brief little intro on some news that has piqued our interest regarding, <laughs> yeah, the modern and the medieval. And then we are going to get into our special guest. The nitty-gritty. Guests. Yeah, the nitty-gritty. <laughs> um, so first, let's do some news. Hello, you want to start us off? So I don't know if everyone's seen, but there's been a fire in Nantes, in the Cathedral of Nantes which, you know, we, we were very taken aback by this, especially because it seems to be kind of a different fire to the Notre Dame fire, which yeah. happened, is it, was it 15 months ago? Yeah, so Notre Dame was uh, 15 months ago. And also that one initially was thought to be arson, but has since been deemed as like an accidental start of something in the wood attic. Whereas this one definitely seems to be arson, which is really unfortunate and sad. The similarities between the two are also quite eerie, as both are in France. Uh, the two major medieval cathedrals. Yeah, exactly. So for those of you who don't know, uh, work on the Nantes Cathedral began in 1434. So we're talking about the tail end of the Middle Ages. But like Notre Dame, it continued throughout the centuries up until the 19th century. Yeah. More waits as, as we discover more and the news discovers more. <laughs> yes, definitely. We just felt like it was worth a, a shout out, worth a mention. Um, in other news, there has been a recent revival in looking at epic poetry through the 21st century perspective. Lots of new translations of the Aeneid, of Beowulf, and other stories like the Fairy Queen are coming out with new perspectives that are shaped more by the 20th century and 21st century rather than medieval, modern, early modern. We think this is quite interesting because as well, all of these texts have shaped Western uh, culture, language, uh, literature, poetry, the arts. And so the fact that we are going back to them and saying that we'd read them wrong or translated them wrong or understood them in the wrong manner means that um, our culture is shaped on you know, misconceptions and misreadings. And that is in itself quite interesting in texts that have like had such an important impact. Right. Something that has like shaped at least Western uh, culture, not so much elsewhere because there's other texts around the world. Of course. Right. But there is also the struggle with something like this, that how do you not project too much of the contemporary moment into these classic texts? Like what is that balance between the two? And just a quick note on this New York Times article that introduced us to this is these books are coming out with the question of like, what does it mean to read these texts during a time of crisis, during a time of disease? So that's just very compelling for us and something that we will continue to bring up throughout our episodes. So without further ado, (laughs) we are going to have our little clip break that will introduce themes to our guest today, which is Mr. Nick Moles, a good friend of mine, an architectural historian, where he will talk to us about medieval architecture. So we are going to start our clip from The Haunting of Hill House. Enjoy. Yes. Is that Hill House? No. Come here. Take a look. This is our forever house. You made this? I designed it, yeah. I designed them. Daddy built stuff. Just looks like a lot of lines. Mm, That's true. But when I look at it, I see a family running to a dinner table from all three directions. This dining room is the heart of the house. Everything flows in and out, see? Every house needs a heart, and this is ours because that's where we spend the most time together. You know, a house is like a person's body. The walls are like bones. 
the pipes or veins, needs to breathe, needs light and flow. And it all works together to keep us safe and healthy inside. I don't see any of that. <laughs> well, hello. Hello. <laughs> we are very, very excited today because we have our second guest. Yay! Yay! Um, and today will be a little bit of a shakeup, um, something quite new. So our guest today is my dear good friend, Mr. Nick Moles. He, I met him while pursuing a degree in Edinburgh, at Edinburgh University. And Nick is an architect, hence him being here for our first architectural episode on medieval, modern medieval. Um, so Nick just com recently completed his PhD. Uh, and it was titled Sebastiano Serraleo's Architectural Principles in Britain, 1600 to 1750. So Nick is an early modernist, but we think that he's a wonderful person to have come today because he's not a medievalist. So his perspective is very unique. Also because the early modern has a slip and a slide with what we consider the medieval, which Nick will elaborate on throughout our episode today. So hello, Nick. Hi. Hi, Megan. Hi, Hi. Eleonora. Hi. <laughs> Great. Anything to add before we get going, Ella? Just, we're really happy that you're with us today. Yes, thank you. So to start us off, um, I'm going to ask you what your relationship to the medieval actually is, if you have one. What do you think of it? Okay, thank you. Uh, I don't really have a direct relationship to the medieval as I focus mostly on the, classic, the classical receptions of architecture during the early modern period. Um, but of course, my research mostly focuses, as Megan mentioned, on Sebastiano Serlio, who was born during the Italian Renaissance of the late 15th century. And uh, of course, we must remember that uh, some historians claim that the medieval ended uh, later in other parts of Europe, such as in Britain, where the medieval ended uh, with the dissolution of the monasteries around 1530s and the 1540s during the reign of Henry VIII. Uh, so well, of course, we may uh, consider that uh, Salio's life uh, balances between those of the uh, medieval and the early modern world. Um, so to an extent, I have an interest in, in uh, the late medieval. And as such, Salio, as well as other early modern architectural authorities, also used medieval philo uh, philosophies for the conception of their architecture. And we can, for instance, think of uh, reinterpretations of Aristotelian ethics by Thomas Aquinas from the 13th century, who linked Christian uh, morality to religious architecture, which in itself also affected the architects and artists like Alberti, Leonardo da Vinci, and uh, Salio himself. Wonderful. Those are some names that I know. <laughs> it's glad to hear that. <laughs> so um, the next question that I have for you is, um, what is actually medieval architecture um, for, you know, people who don't know much about architecture, what are the basic um, characteristics of medieval architecture for someone who's walking around a city to notice? Yeah, for us who, referring to the clip, just don't see what you architects see. You have the lines and you understand it. And we're just like, yeah. what? <laughs> okay, great. Um, of course, this is a very broad question. Uh, as you well know, that the medieval uh, time in the Middle Ages spent a period of uh, roughly a millennium. So it's it's very very broad to answer this uh, of what the medieval uh, what medieval architecture is. 
Um, but of course, we can talk about the medieval uh, taking many forms, which includes uh, single-story uh, timber buildings or huts. Uh, think about the Germanic peoples, think about uh, Vikings, and then of course also the later large stone cathedrals of the Gothic period, which is how most people actually perceive uh, the medieval uh, most of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, uh, what is often forgotten is that also the classical has a very important part within um, medieval architecture. Um, and we cannot really forget the medieval styles that try to mimic the architecture of the Roman antiquities, uh, as we can see in the Carolingian Renaissance. Uh, think of uh, Charlemagne in the, uh, from the 8th century, the Romanesque style uh, from the 10th and the 11th century, and then, of course, the Italian Renaissance and the Romanesque revival from the 14th uh, century. And um, medieval masons sought to uh, copy the Roman ornaments and forms, uh, equally used uh, spoliation, with, which I mean um, the reusage of pre existing architectural elements. Uh, so, for instance, we find some uh, medieval castles in Britain that reused Roman brick. Uh, mm -hmm. We find some um, Islamic mosques that used uh, capitals from, uh, from the Romans uh, and incorporated them in, uh, in their buildings. That's so interesting. Wow. Thank you for that answer. Um, and so I guess a final question about this is like, what is the differences between Gothic versus classical medieval architecture, if, if that's an easy distinction to make? I, I think it really depends on what uh, style you, of course, want to focus on. Uh, as we already mentioned, there are many types of styles during the Middle Ages. And um, we, of course, all know that the difference between the medieval classical styles and the Gothic is very different. So with the Gothic, uh, the, the, the best known of the, Gothic of the medieval styles, we mostly look uh, for characteristics such as pointed arches, pinnacles, buttresses. Buttresses are uh, the vertical support of the building that holds up the walls uh, at the exterior. Mm -hmm. um, while we actually tend to focus on the rounded arches, classicized ornaments in, for instance, Romanesque buildings. And um, another characteristic of, of the medieval is mostly the glass windows, um, the horizontal lines and the overabundance of lights um, in relation to the insecurity of early masons and architects. Uh, who built darker spaces with smaller windows and, and massive, huge walls. Now, last, I think we must also mention that these features are typical for the medieval edifice. They can equally be the typical characteristics of later styles, neo-styles, uh, such as the neo-Gothic. Um, and we can not always uh, define a medieval building by looking at the characteristics, because later periods, of course, also use these features. And then we should, of course, look into proportion, typology, ornament, structure, symbolism, social narrative, the material, and so on, in whether to determine whether something is medieval or not. I hope that is clear. Yes. I think it was. Thank you. Yes, thank you, thank you. So building upon kind of all of this, we're going to return a little bit more towards your research and the, you know, medieval, late medieval so what are the basic differences you see emerging between particularly late medieval architecture and the architecture that you study in the early modern? That's a great question. Uh, as, as we uh, previously mentioned, uh, the boundary between the early modern and the medieval is not always that defined and is definitely not as defined as most people would like to think. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is actually a constant evolution of style uh, throughout history, not only during the Middle Ages, uh, where we see changing styles, changing aesthetics, changing functions, different building techniques, different uh, social usage and planning of buildings. Um, but I think one of the main elements that marks a shift from the medieval uh, and, and the early modern is, of course, the rise of Protestantism. Um, we already mentioned the dissolution of the monasteries in Britain. And uh, we also see different liturgical practice emerge uh, out of that. Uh, new theories, experiences, and, and, uh, and usages of church architecture. Uh, at the same time, we uh, can also think of the rise of print technology, the rise of the printed book, uh, the emergence of the Gutenberg Press, uh, which is still in the medieval period, but it marks a shift in how knowledge was produced, how visuals were produced uh, and disseminated, which gave, of course, architects, artists, masons, uh, a new way in how to use print media uh, to reason through and design new architecture. And uh, of course, we must keep in mind that visuals did exist, drawings did exist during the medieval period, uh, but the invention of the press um, allowed to spread the images throughout all of the corners of Europe mm-hmm. and uh, that could emulate the antiquities and create something in, that resembles the antiquities to a much greater extent than before, which is, of course, what we nowadays would designate as the Renaissance. Um, And such new technologies, religious practices and beliefs, philosophies and styles uh, marked, of course, a divergence from the medieval period. Great. Um, Especially because I think that that gestures to something that Elo and I are frequently trying to instill in our listeners, which is that the medieval wasn't this kind of dry time. I mean, it's quite interesting to think that people acknowledge the Middle Ages as these dark ages, and yet we have these brilliant, huge cathedrals being built, which I feel is completely contrary to that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, One thing I wanted to see if you could maybe expand or clarify a bit more, at least for me, I don't know about you, Elo, but you talk about how the rise of Protestantism affects the styles of the early modern. What exactly does that mean? So the Protestant Reformation and all of that, we see in the church's iconoclasm or the destruction of the highly elaborate, very detailed stained glass windows being destroyed and replaced with panes because uh, the worshippers of Protestantism saw it as a distraction from the word of God as, you know, too elaborate. So how does that manifest itself in early modern period architecture? So uh, that, that's actually a fantastic question. Um, again, the evolution of church architecture is uh, something that has been happening uh, for centuries. Uh, For instance, if we think of the Gregorian reforms uh, of the Middle Ages, um, we also see that liturgical practice changed, uh, practice of transubstantiation uh, in in the Catholic Church um, emerged, and the root screen basically um, was a division between the clergy and um, the people actually attending mass. In the Renaissance, that would no longer be part of it. In the later medieval period, that would no longer be part of it. Uh, You already mentioned, of course, um, that Protestantism, the iconoclasm, they do not worship uh, the image. So we don't find statues. The saints are less common. Uh, We find, of course, glass windows. The concept of light is still very much present in churches, in Protestant churches, but they are no longer uh, colored 
Um, think of John Knox in the iconoclasm of, of Edinburgh. There is a, a huge division in, in how the Protestant church actually looked like, uh, far less color, far less ornamentation. But equally, if we look at the, uh, the impact and the changes of religious belief in, the, uh, in the, the Catholic church, we find the rise of the centralized uh, church plan. It's more idealized, but a lot of architects, including Sebastiano Serlio, including Alberti, who I mentioned before, um, they were discussing the church as being centralized, so no longer part of the basilica, which mm-hmm. um, was also, of course, the typical form of the church as we know. And even though we find these basic principles also in the medieval period, it's something that becomes, at least on a theoretical level, uh, much more part of, uh, of, of Catholic religious building during the early modern period. I hope that's clear. Is, is it? I was kind of wondering if you could potentially um, explain the term transubstantiation. <laughs> so transubstantiation, <Right>. I... <laughs> <laughs> Don't, don't worry about it. It's a, it's a very difficult concept. Uh, a lot of people don't really believe in that anymore. But right. uh, for instance, you have to remember that, again, this is part of the uh, Gregorian reforms, which spanned a few centuries. So it's also very difficult to explain. Um, if you would ask a theologian, they would probably uh, be able to explain it much better than what I know with my ample understanding of it. Uh, But basically, transubstantiation during the Black Death, you have to understand um, a lot of people in Europe died. Uh, We, of course, are living through Corona. So to a certain extent, we uh, understand what was happening during those times. But because death was so ever-present, they actually started to care about uh, the human soul to a much greater extent. And um, transubstantiation basically means that we pray for the death within a church, which is also... Uh, basically why everyone had to be buried as close to the church as possible. Mm -hmm. And when praying for the soul of the deceased, the soul would rise up from the grave and actually sit in mass. And they would pray for the soul so they could enter heaven more quick. And that is basically transubstantiation. And it's something which is typical for uh, the Catholic church, which is also something that would affect early modern architecture. Uh, onwards, um, the practice of transubstantiation um, that would not be uh, present in, in the Protestant church. That um, description of transubstantiation, I've always learned, at least from what I recall learning in my Catholic high school, was during the Mass, the Eucharist was the transfer of the, the wafer of the bread to the actual literal body of Christ and the wine to the literal blood Christ. So transubstantiation was the mystical moment of actual becoming. Quite vampiric if you think about it now. <laughs> it's, it's actually interesting, but I, I already, of course, mentioned that uh, I'm, I'm not a theologian, so right. uh, there may be a couple of, of gaps uh, of my own uh, understanding of that. I also <laughs> don't really know how present-day liturgical practice uh, defines it in, in respect to, to the medieval. Uh, but I, basically what you say is also that we take in the soul of Christ. So it's, again, the connecting of the heavens, uh, of the deceased and the presence. So there is definitely already a connection between the body and the soul. So One kind of more question on this Protestant change, Nick, and you've been talking a lot about the churches in the early modern era. Uh, could you briefly describe maybe a change that we see in non-religious buildings, like, um, like villas and buildings such as that? 
So uh, that's, that's a great question. Again, uh, very difficult to answer due to the large time span of the medieval times. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is very important to uh, remind ourselves that the Romans built quite a lot of uh, villas, so real uh, agricultural constructs manifested in architecture. And um, they, of course, were still in use partially in parts of Europe in Italy, in Germany, during the early medieval period. And, and of course, the villa started to wane during uh, the later and the high Middle Ages. During the Renaissance, this concept of, of the, the villa as a retreat, as a agricultural uh, fabric, was something that was uh, emerging again uh, mm-hmm. for recreation of, uh, of the rich uh, mercantile class, uh, the, the aristocracy, and so on. And uh, we, we, of course, also have the building of the villa uh, that marks uh, a new shift of, of peace in Europe. We have mm-hmm. less wars during the 16th, particularly the later 16th century. Uh, so the villa became an opportunity for architects and patrons to build again. And, um, of course, this is the time where they wanted to evoke the spirit of the Roman uh, again, the antiquities. Mm-hmm. This is reminding me a lot of our conversation last week, Elo with Janina and the uh, romantic medieval inspiring and reviving the pastoral era. And yeah, for sure. we're seeing this, but with the kind of romantic Roman or classic vibe. And so it's just kind of interesting, these uh, circulating uh, revivals. It's, in my head, I kind of see it as like a yin and yang, but like rotating where you go through periods of one and the other. Um, you seem like you're going to keep talking, Nick, but that just, my head was kind of like, this sounds so similar. <laughs> and I, I actually love the fact that you brought out uh, the pastoral because that is exactly what they try to evoke. If we think of Arcadia, which is a concept, of course, uh, that is persistent throughout uh, basically the history of, of the West, uh, they really try to, to mimic these philosophies of Arcadia, the pastoral, uh, the primitivity of, of humankind and have the building uh, in its natural surrounding uh, as a contrast of the roughness of nature uh, and, of course, the geometric clarity of the human world. So that's that's absolutely a great link, yeah. Yay! <laughs> Architectural links! <laughs> um, so we're going to um, pivot and get a little bit more specific. So audience, if you thought we were already specific, buckle up. <laughs> um, so we wanted to kind of think of this conversation in a way where our audience could visualize it a little bit more. I mean, I think we're all very familiar with cathedrals and whatnot. Um, but like, for example, I'm American. So there's nothing medieval in America. We have, you know, medieval revival, Gothic revival, neo-medieval, whatever you want to brand it. But I think the oldest buildings that we have that are non-Indigenous peoples is uh, like in California, the missions, which is what, 1600s, 1700s. Um, so Ello and I were thinking, well, what has been in the news? What is something that people are frequently interacting with? And so we decided to return once again to the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, Turkey, which is at this bridge between the East and the West of Europe and the Near East. It's in a wonderful kind of liminal or threshold space. And then Notre Dame in Paris, which is in one of the hearts of Europe, Paris being a epicenter for centuries, if not millennia, as both these buildings are very familiar, iconic buildings. Um, and they're both just happen to be, you know, arguably medieval buildings. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> Nick, 
what would you say is medieval about these buildings? And then on the flip side of that, what isn't? I know it's a lot. <laughs> Great. Um, I, I love the fact that you already said arguably uh, medieval because... Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, because, of course, we, we already mentioned the fluidity of style, the constant change, the constant evolution, uh, the large span of the medieval period. And uh, while I started saying that Sally was born right at the turning point of the medieval and the Renaissance, we can actually look at the, um, the Archa Sophia uh, pos positioned uh, right in between the medieval and the late antiquities as it was built in the 6th century. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as such, we may, of course, interpret uh, it as a medieval building, uh, as it is, of course, uh, constructed after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. But we also must re recall that it was built during the reign of uh, Emperor Justinian I, the Byzantine, or uh, indeed the Eastern Roman uh, Emperor. So uh, this building marks uh, the, the exact nexus between the late antiquities and the medieval. So I think that's, uh, that's fantastic that you mentioned that. Speak. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> then, uh, of course, the typical uh, Byzantine features that we, uh, that we know uh, from, from Roman architecture and that we can still see in the interior, for instance, of, uh, of the Agia Sophia are the uh, Christian iconography. Um, some of it has been erased, of course, because it, it was turned into a mosque, but some of it still remains. Mm -hmm. We also have the, the usage of multiple domes, which is not something we find typical in Roman architecture. We have the Pantheon, but it's one, one dome. Um, and of course, we also see an emerging uh, complexity in the geometry, which again is, is much more Byzantine and medieval than it is from the antiquities. Uh, for the Notre Dame, uh, we find basically all of the typical features of, of Gothic architecture, which we mentioned before, mm -hmm. um, including the buttresses, the pointed arches. Uh, and, and of course, it is a very early example of the French Gothic uh, style from the late 12th century. Um, but we also see the west facades with the, the two towers uh, and a very strong architectural horizontality with the architecture actually reaching out to the heavens. Mm -hmm. Very typical for the Gothic. And the interior church also has the typical uh, layout of the medieval church with the central nave, the flanking aisles, with the pilasters and colonnades, uh, and the, the choir behind the transept that is the cross uh, of the church. So as an early example of the Gothic style, it, it actually has all of the features, but it remains fairly dark in contrast to later Gothic styles, as we actually see in the Saint-Chapelle, which is located a few hundred meters away from the Notre-Dame. And uh, nevertheless, or having said that, we, uh, we can, of course, see the concept and the emerging concept of light in Gothic architecture, even despite it being a dark example. But if we think of the rose window with the stained glass, uh, the color, we definitely actually experience the concept of light in the Notre Dame. Um, so that is definitely something we have to highlight. Yes, love that. Just quick thought on the rose window. Um, when searching for a clip for this week, I rewatched Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame, thinking, oh, maybe there'll be a, a moment that can link us via a Disney clip like last week. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't, unfortunately. Um, I love that, like, <laughs> Disney versus medieval, which one will it be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who will win? Um, <laughs> but... I'm just thinking of that scene where Esmeralda is 
uh, asking for sanctuary in the church and she sings the song, God help the outcasts and all that. And it's quite dark, but then it ends where she kind of collapses in front of the rose windows, illuminating all this colored light down. And it's this glowing circle of uh, kind of kaleidoscopic colors, but then around it is darkness. So again, Disney kind of touching into this quite realistic atmosphere while still being, you know, Disney with talking gargoyles and et cetera. Um, so continue, Nick. Sorry, I just had to do a little pop culture no, Disney. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, I, I think actually that reference to Disney is, is uh, actually does grasp the atmosphere of the Gothic cathedral quite well. So that was a, a nice analogy, which is definitely comprehensible to all of our listeners. So that is fantastic. Um, and, and then, of course, then the second part of your question is what, what is not medieval about um, these two buildings, the Notre Dame and the Hagia Sophia. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, uh, the Notre Dame is, is unquestionably medieval, uh, but yet we may find some medieval modifications of pre-existing classical ideas. And the historian John O'Neill uh, pointed out naturalistic and botanic stone carving uh, that we find in Gothic architecture um, and also in the Notre Dame, in the capitals of the medieval peers. And he explains that these are simplified and uh, amended ornamentations that derive from uh, the Corinthian capitals of ancient Greece. So there is always a narrative of the classical um, within uh, Gothic ornamentation, even though we don't necessarily uh, perceive it as such. Briefly, Nick, sorry. Uh, Could you just for our audience tell them in a nutshell what a capital is? Of course. You're getting Um, a architecture class, isn't this great, for free? (laughs) Yes, uh, architecture, <laughs> architecture for Dummies 101. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if you look at a, a column or a pier, you usually have uh, three aspects of it. Um, the bottom, mm-hmm. where you usually have uh, a small stone carving ornamentation that is sort of considered to be the foundation of the, the pillar, uh, which we call the column, um, which is also named the base. Okay. Then we have the middle part, which is basically uh, all of the vertical lines we perceive, which is called the shaft of the column. And then at the top, we have, uh, again, uh, an element, an architectural element that marks the end of the column uh, on which we find the architrave or an, an other structural element. And uh, that upper part, uh, which is often carved quite, uh, quite wealthily, or uh, quite quite exquisitely carved is called the capital. So I, okay. I hope that clarifies everything. Cool. Thank you. Uh, if you continue, okay. please. Um, and then, of course, we also have uh, the typical characteristics in Gothic architecture that derives from the classical. Is actually a hint of the Roman basilica. And the basilica uh, in the Roman uh, period took the form of a rectangular space, uh, often with an apsis, which is a rounded end and uh, was often located near the Roman Forum and acted as a multifunctional building. We have to remember that uh, during the time of, uh, of Roman Christianity, think of the time of uh, Emperor Constantine, uh, the fourth century, the Basilica also became a space of Christian devotion. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that moment onwards, it was the, the, the basic typology for church architecture, later medieval church architecture. So even though altered uh, the plan and the ornamentation of the Notre Dame, 
still actually bear traces of that Roman archetype. Um, the Hagia Sophia, in contrast, uh, of course, has much more classical and Roman features, as we discussed. It's actually on the nexus of the late antiquities and, uh, and the medieval, uh, such mm -hmm. as, uh, I'm going to repeat what I said before, the rounded arches, the marble pilasters, uh, the mosaics, very typical Roman, the Roman brick, the concrete. Um, and of course, these two buildings are fantastic, fantastic question because uh, we already discussed the fluidity of style, the constant evolution, uh, that it is impossible to define the, the, the medieval period as a singular uh, style period experience of architecture. And these two examples actually outline the versatility of aesthetics and changing aesthetics of the medieval period. So thank you for that. Um, so jumping off that, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you something completely <laughs> different. Um, we've been talking about Gothic architecture and like visions of the medieval that mo most of our audience has probably been, um, has had access to. And I was wondering, kind of looking at something kind of different, maybe slightly similar to the Hagia Sophia, um, I was thinking of the Capella Palatina in Palermo because it was the topic of one of my um, essays and it's a a different kind of cathedral and I was wondering I looked at it from a art historical point of view but I was wondering from an architectural point of view if you had you know comments if w what you think of it if you've known about it for a while or if it's you know something new so uh fantastic what uh what a lovely question uh you are putting me on the spot here I'm not <laughs> at all not at all too familiar with the building itself but um, actually, we have been discussing the, uh, the fluidity and the versatility of the medieval period, and this building exactly points that out. Um, so you're completely right in saying it's a, it's a Byzantine building. We definitely see that. But we also see a completely different uh, aspect of the medieval that we have not yet mentioned. And we must, of course, understand that um, uh, the Islamic Caliphate um, did uh, actually occupy part of the South of Italy, Spain, and so on. And they definitely left an imprint on the regional uh, architectural uh, style and way of building. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Capella Palatina in uh, Palermo is, is fantastic because we see all of the typical Byzantine features we mentioned, such as the Christian iconography, uh, the domes, the complex geometries. But actually, we also see some uh, geometries like the complex uh, ceilings, uh, which we named the Mukarnas, which are very typical of Islamic architecture. And we actually see the merging of the medieval uh, Islamic, uh, the medieval Christianity, the Byzantine. Uh, so, so absolutely, fantastic question. I'm glad yeah, you enjoyed that. <laughs> I love how you keep bringing in the Capella Palatina, Ello. It's like a recurring theme. We've it's got the Capella Palatina and Disney. It's great. Um, but I also do think, um, that this is just a wonderful example yet again with Hagia Sophia and this and how they're Byzantine because at least myself growing up, you know, how you kind of compartmentalize different time periods and places and being American, we think of American history and all that. You kind of forget what's going on in Europe and they seem separate. And to me, even though I'm a, a new medievalist, but, you know, having studied Byzantine history and all of that, it just, in my brain, it's still a completely different time frame. Like it's not yeah. contemporary to the medieval, no, but it I is. Know. Yeah. And it's fascinating when you have absolutely breathtaking, you know, buildings like this. And it's just showing that they're at the same time, that they're, they're kind of feeding on one another. 
And my yeah. brain's like, but they're different. Yeah. But they're not. <laughs> I mean, as as the, as the audience has been able to kind of gather um, in these episodes, we kind of see like the, the divergence or like the breadth of the medieval and what constitutes it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's things that I didn't even think about um, a couple of months ago. It's only through this class I've started thinking about it in different light. The same. So, Nick, you've been a great bridge with that today because our architecture it is such the physical testament of a time and I think we take that for granted quite often or at least I feel that I do you know you think I know of, nothing about it <laughs> yeah I mean I don't know anything about it really either what is also really uh fine about these past examples of the early modern period of uh of the medieval is of course that architecture is not only the material manifestation but it's also the social construct of society mm-hmm. a lot of the buildings you uh you mentioned also have painting sculpture there is uh, devotional space there is way in how to trade so it's it's literally one of the first things that combines everything of society and that we need to take into account when we look at architecture. So um, that is also why I'm so interested in architecture in the first place. Yes, I love the cultural elements. But then, you know, when we get into the uh, specifics, like reading Anayans, my brain just kind (laughs) of gloss, my eyes gloss over. (laughs) I'm like, what's happening here? Going off what you were just saying, Nick, in regards to the social, the cultural and architecture, and building upon Hagia Sophia and Notre Dame, they've been in the news a lot. Uh, Hagia Sophia more recently than Notre Dame. Notre Dame, of course, because of the April 2019 fire that took down the spire and parts of the roof. And I think it destroyed the rose window, if I recall correctly, or damaged it. I mm-hmm. Honestly, I can't recall. But I, I do know the spire, which mm-hmm. is a yeah, kind of controversial that's figure. That's what I remember to fall because that's actually not a medieval element. That was something that was built by Viollet le Duc in the 19th century. Am I correct, Nick? And yeah. okay, so that has questions of restoration as well as revival because that was a Gothic revival element. And then Hagia Sophia recently being uh, voted to be returned to being a place of active worship as a mosque. So I guess within that, Nick, because there's not really a question, so let me give you the question. You know, what are your views on architectural revival? You've touched on it a little bit, but I guess bring it back up. And then also uh, modes of restoration and the ideas and practices of restoration. Okay, great. Uh, so it, it really is uh, a matter of, you know, what is the Gothic uh, revival? What is the classical revival? So what is revival? And uh, mm-hmm. Uh, in particularly in contemporary architecture, and I'm not very fond of that definition, but it's often looked at uh, a continuation uh, or a revival of a tradition, mm-hmm. um, which often has a very historicist notion and is criticized for that quite often. But of course, you can also look at a revival uh, as a persistence of multiple traditions, as we basically have been discussing uh, mm-hmm. throughout the entire uh, talk. And I, I don't really think historicism for historicism does uh, actually serve a purpose to anyone. But the continuation of values, norms, traditions, uh, recognizable practices throughout culture, beyond architecture as well, is actually something that binds people, binds a community, is something that 
that actually makes a culture uh, a very specific culture. It allows identification. And uh, of course, every building on the, others, uh, on the other side, also every building has to resonate with the, the zeitgeist or uh, the spirit of its time in mm -hmm. uh, the ever-changing human uh, society or existence. So when we look at, for instance, the revival styles of the 19th century, many scholars and particularly contemporary architects tend to uh, downplay the movement, the style in that period as something completely traditionalist, conservative, with no social emphasis, with no innovation. Um, but of course, uh, if we look more closely to these examples, we find that indeed the architectural aesthetics look back at many of the um, the buildings uh, of the past, but mm -hmm. at the same time, we see a lot of innovative technologies, the emergence of steel, the emergence of, of concrete construction, and uh, of course, new technologies like the Evans of the uh, British Houses of Parliament are, of course, very novel. They are uh, very much resonating with the technological change that is happening during the Industrial Revolution. Then, mm -hmm. second, um, we also have contrasts, uh, which actually I, I really love, which is the publication of, of Pugin. And indeed, he does talk about a level of going back to the medieval society. There is definitely a notion of idealization of, of the medieval utopia. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's very easy to forget that the ambition was also a reaction to the social change of the Industrial Revolution, which manifested on the worsening living standards, worsening work conditions uh, of the polluted cities of, at the time. And uh, I, I think here, uh, rather than a historicist, Pugin's Gothic revival was actually uh, a reaction to uh, needed uh, contemporary change at that time. And uh, I, I think we have to stop looking at these revivalist styles as being um, uh, looking back at history. Uh, I think we should look at it as a continuation of history which we have always been doing uh, and which we have been discussing throughout the ch chats. And um, I, I think it is very important that we always have to embed the continuation of the past and then amend it to uh, the spirit of, of the time, which is actually no different what contemporary architects are doing uh, with Mies van der Rohe or Le Corbusier, the typical modernist uh, architects. That's lovely. <laughs> yeah, this is such an interesting. I had never thought, I mean, you know, I was going to say, we could come in and say, yeah, we're looking back onto the past when, you know, we don't like what we see in the present. But actually, the way you phrase it and the way you're thinking about it is so interesting. I never would have thought of it that way. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. And it also kind of has my gears uh, turning in reference to last week as well, when uh, we were talking about pastoral versus gothic. So Sleeping Beauty's, you know, rose colored castle versus Maleficent's dark castle. And it's quite interesting because I think there's a contradiction going on. It doesn't mean that our conversation last week was by any means flawed or wrong. It just brings out the complexities even more. But how Janina was saying that the castle that Sleeping Beauty is in was defined by the mathematic industrial straight lines and was yet also the pastoral, whereas Maleficent's was dark and gothic, but the more organic she was using as a term, which with what you were just saying, Nick, they would have the industrial with the dark and the kind of like sooty or whatnot, and then and the industrialized, and then the bright with the botanic. So there's kind of this rift occurring between those, if that makes sense. I hope I explained that. Yeah, thought. absolutely. 
So Nick, going off of all of this and talk about restoration, what are your thoughts on the restoration of the spire at Notre Dame, which was a Viollet le Duc, so 19th century edition, but a lot of people deeply associate it with the original, you know, air quotes, uh, medieval architecture of Notre Dame. So what are your thoughts? Okay, that's, that's great. Um, so basically, you're talking about uh, renovation or restoration or a, a level of innovation that uh, is allowed in architecture. Mm-hmm. I think the, the reference to the, the, the spire of the Notre Dame uh, in a Gothic revival style versus the Gothic medieval style is, uh, is actually quite uh, interesting because it highlights a phenomenon that has actually been occurring uh, for, for hundreds of years throughout Western history. Um, and people, patrons, architects, masons, they were not at all afraid of um, adding a Gothic wing to a Romanesque church uh, if the styles and the aesthetics had changed. So we find a lot of these uh, examples, uh, for instance, in Tournai in present-day Belgium, uh, one of the largest Romanesque structures uh, we still have, has uh, also a, a Gothic wing. And it's, it's not at all strange to find uh, different architectural styles of different architectural periods in the same building. And I, I think it is very difficult to just give a clear answer of how we have to uh, approach building uh, in general. I think we must assess from case per case how we have to look at the history, the historic value, uh, the use of the building, and whether we choose for uh, a renovation in a contemporary style that adds to the historic fabric or we have to value uh, the historic significance of a particular building and then choose to reno- uh, sorry, restore it in its original state in order to uh, give that building um, to future societies for them to learn and understand what this was all about. In the case of the Notre Dame, um, I personally think it was a groundbreaking development of French Gothic architecture of the 12th century and even the spire is also a very particular manifestation of 19th century Gothic revival architecture. And I personally think it is much more interesting to restore it rather than innovate it and and make a glass skyscraper out of it, as some architects, of course, uh, have proposed. Uh, So in this occasion, definitely I would go for restoration. But I also must add that a lot of the um, designs we have seen for the renovation, and I'm using the word renovation now, is of course uh, a lot of contemporary architects have no opportunity of building cathedrals. So obviously um, they wanted to take the opportunity to design something contemporary because it's, it's a one in a la- lifetime opportunity for them to design something like that. And that mm-hmm. is exactly why they have done it. But I think most of these designs have never been intended to be uh, serious. Uh, and I'm much more uh, in favor of a restoration. I hope that is clear. Yes. This is such so great to have someone's opinion that, you know, is from a different field as well, and maybe a field that's more directly, you know, associated with it. Thank you. Yes. No pillars of light. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, thank you. I mean, this has been so fascinating. So before we let you get back to your daily life, um, we have one (laughs) final question for you. So what is your favorite medieval slash modern building? if you have one? So um, it's actually quite difficult because, of course, I mentioned that I'm not uh, a medieval person at all. I'm much more of an early modern uh, person. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I, I think throughout the conversation, I made it quite clear that I believe more in the fluidity of style, evolution of style and thoughts uh, and changing techniques, the dissonance, the exceptions rather than the rule within the built environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I can basically uh, come up with, rather than one building, it is more uh, an evocation of, a, of a, an atmosphere mm-hmm. of, a, of a built environment that, that I was absolutely awestruck with. Um, that was when I visited uh, Bologna back in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and the atmosphere of the, the, the Bolognese streets with the timber uh, houses from the medieval period, uh, the classical colonnades, it's just a fantastic atmosphere. And there... Uh, there was the Piazza di Santo Stefano in, in Bologna, which I think is actually quite relevant as a medieval, modern medieval built environment. Of course, it's not a building where we have uh, the Santo Stefano itself, which is uh, a medieval building, uh, both Romanesque and Gothic. And where we also have what Cavalla uh, themed the, the, the Gothic Renaissance, which is basically the mixing of classical elements, the rounded arches, uh, classicized capitals with two-pointed arches and for mm-hmm. me the mix and the fluidity and the atmosphere of that uh, of that piazza for me was was absolutely fantastic so that would be my answer great answer love fantastic. it <laughs> so first of all thank you thank you well, thank, thank you, you. So much. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank the both of you for having me. It was uh, absolutely <laughs> lovely. Um, so for our listeners, where could they find you if they wanted to, you know, find articles you've written or uh, if you're on social media? I, I think Academia and LinkedIn is just the easiest way to find me. Uh, just okay. type my name and uh, they will definitely find me. Cool. So just type in Nick Moles and your name will be spelled out in the podcast notes. Yeah, uh, exactly. So they can find my name and just uh, Google it and they'll find my LinkedIn or academia representation. Fantastic. Amazing. Thank you. So uh, <laughs> hold on, Nick, because we want to keep you through till the very end. But Elo and I are going to briefly familiarize our audience, even though if they're listening, they know, but where they can, <laughs> <laughs> where they can find the podcast. So you can find us on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts uh, just by typing Modern Medieval, the podcast. And you can find us on social media. Yes. So Instagram, good old Instagram under Modern Medieval, the podcast. Our handle there is at podcast.modern.medieval. We also have a Facebook page that's public. So join that, type into Facebook, Modern Medieval podcast. We should show up. And finally, <laughs> we have a Twitter that we're very excited to get more into the tw- Twitterverse. Tweeting. Twitterverse? <laughs> Tweeting. Uh, and you can find us there if you type in Modern Medieval, the podcast, or follow our handle at medieval underscore modern. And then, of course, we've got the good old email or Gmail account at modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. For any comments, questions, queries, future episodes you want to see, fact-checking, etc. Please, please, please email us or message us. We will answer, we promise. Yes, we will answer. And once again, please like us, comment, (laughs) share, get us those listeners. Anything. (laughs) Anything. Nick, at the end of each episode, we trumpet out. And Janina (laughs) trumpeted out with us last episode. Will you please trumpet out with us on this episode? Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> uh, so until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ello. 
and this is Modern Medieval the Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>